From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, September 30th. Starting Tuesday, visitors to Arches National Park will no longer need a reservation, at least for now. The temporary timed entry experiment began in April and was always slated to end on October 4th. Now park staff must pour over the data and decide whether or not to do it again next season. We'll speak with Kate Thomas, the park's public affairs specialist about timed entry, what it was like for visitors and staff, and her thoughts on its contribution to a little slowdown of tourism this year. Kate, thank you so much for being here. You get to communicate a lot with the public. Can you first start with some history on that, how the reservation system was communicated, because this was a first for Arches. How did that work? Yeah, so we um, initially, before the time entry pilot began at Arches, we spent a significant amount of time advertising and working with the county. It was it was fantastic, actually. We had a wonderful relationship with our friends, um, you know, August Granith over with the Travel Council and um, just the Grand County Office of Economic Development. So we worked on getting some advertisement out together with that. We also worked on a lot of um, targeted social media campaigns with Arches specifically. And then we updated all of our website material. We updated our radio station that we have at the park. And we also reached out to news organizations across the country just to let them know that we were going to be implementing this change. And, um, that was really a lot of fun, right? We got to engage with the community. We got to engage with people from all across the country just to let them know that timed entry was happening at Arches. And we do feel like we did a pretty good job. What's fantastic is that by and large, I would say more than 85% of all people who arrived in Moab and went to the park already knew that timed entry was in place before they even got here. And so that was just really a fantastic success for us. And then we've watched over the the summer, the the sentiment of timed entry ebb and flow. I think in the beginning, people were excited just to see how it was going. Uh, When things slowed down for us a little bit in the summer, there were some questions as to whether timed entry was perhaps reducing visitation throughout the the area. Uh, But now here we are in September and things are pretty busy again. So it's it's been interesting. And uh, when we announced that timed entry was going to uh, end for the year, I was really impressed. I was very excited to get just loads of positive feedback. So folks were reaching out to the park and just letting us know how much they enjoyed time entry, how much they appreciated the opportunity to use it, how much they felt like the park experience had improved. And there's definitely a lot of sentiment out there right now that that they would like to see it continue. But that's a question that's yet to be decided. So timed entry at Arches basically guaranteed that people could make reservations to get into the park during specific time frames um, between 6 a.m. and 5 p.m. I remember the park based the number of vehicles that could get in um, on their busiest days of 2019. And the timed entry system just basically distributed that busyness throughout the day. So parking lots weren't immediately overwhelmed at surge times and the entrance gate didn't have to close. So the Park Service said they might make adjustments to the timed entry system as it was running. Were any changes made throughout this pilot project? Yes, adjustments were made. So we actually, after the first few weeks, realized that we could accommodate 
additional vehicles because the no-show rate was close to 30%, I believe. And so what we did was we actually oversold all of our tickets by about 30% so that we could bump up the total number of vehicles. And, and then we also did change operationally on our end, just little things about how we manage the entrance line so that we could try to improve efficiency. So we had rangers working in different locations along the line. We had folks at the roundabout uh, just after the entrance station. And we also adapted our policies to at the booth itself just to try to make things a little bit more efficient during during check-in. You mentioned a positive response from visitors. Could you elaborate on that? I'd like to hear more about um, what you're hearing from a visitor's perspective and also, you know, a staff perspective. Absolutely. So I think that from a visitation perspective or a visitor perspective, What's been really wonderful to see are folks who have been repeat Arches visitors, people who have been visiting the park over the last couple of years. They've had maybe mixed feelings about their experiences, especially during the pandemic, during 2020-2021. And we've been getting these beautiful letters and, and notes on Facebook where folks have been saying that they've visited the park before and they couldn't find parking. They had a horrible time. They weren't able to enjoy peace and solitude on the trails. But this year with timed entry, after they secured that ticket, they were able to come into the park and just enjoy it like they remembered it from a long time ago, or just enjoy it for this amazing beauty and, and extreme solitude. And, and I think that that is just something that's really profound. And we haven't really, you know, when you think about it, those ticket numbers are still pretty high. So we haven't reduced the the total number of vehicles that have the opportunity to come into the park, but just by spreading them out throughout the day, it really changes the feel and really reduces that feeling of crowding in the park. So that I think has just been amazing to see um, lots of great visitor reviews from that aspect. And then I think that our staff too have really enjoyed at least up in the park experiencing less congestion, less wait times. You know, you can actually find a spot or two when you're driving through Devil's Garden or through the window section. And that's really helped us um, just with our own schedules. And we've also had fewer search and rescue incidents this year. And that's been very helpful too. And and I think that uh, things are just running really smoothly up in the park. You know, earlier you mentioned that the reservation system might have gotten lumped in as one of the potential reasons for a dip in visitation to Grand County. Last year it was really busy, and now Grand County's numbers seem to have returned to pre-pandemic levels. Do you have any comment on how the reservation could have played into that? Yeah, we we do believe that it could have contributed at least somewhat, but not certainly to the extent that we saw Um you know, we do believe that there's a lot of different factors. You had the gas prices, you had the uncertainty with the economy, you had weather. And, you know, I think the time and entry was just icing on that cake. And we, we recognize, and we don't want to come across as saying that, oh, time entry absolutely did not have an impact because we don't know that. We don't know that it didn't impact some, but we think that that impact is is relatively small. And the reason we believe that is because during July and August specifically, we had far more tickets available than were sold. So we were operating the park throughout the day without selling out with with plenty of availability. So anybody who came to the park during those months could absolutely get in. And, And so we weren't limiting visitation at all during that time. 
So the pilot timed entry at Arches is coming to an end. The last day is October 4th. Um, after that, people will no longer need a reservation to visit the park. Um, now that this first experiment of a reservation system is over, you know, what happens next? That is a great question. So what we are doing is we're compiling all of the data and, and we have loads of it. You know, how many people showed up every day? How many people showed up per hour? How many people did we turn around during those busy months? Uh, how long were the lines? How efficient were we at processing the vehicles? How many staff members do we need in the future? So there's a lot of data that we're going to be crunching. There's a lot of questions that we're going to be asking. And all of that is going to get wrapped up into um, basically a, a concept or an idea for us moving forward. So we'll probably be looking at all of this information over the next couple of months. We'll likely be meeting with the county. We'll be meeting with the Chamber of Commerce, our local businesses, just to get their feedback as well and contribute all that together or put that all together and try to decide what we would like to do moving forward because we haven't made a, a final decision. We don't know if we're going to implement timed entry in future years, if we're going to do it next year, or if we're going to do it in years after that. Uh, we're just going to really take a hard look at it, see if it's financially feasible for us, the park service, see if we can uh, make it happen with our staffing levels as well, because that was a big challenge. And then also just see if it's something that's palatable to the community. And I, I think that we definitely believe that it did achieve most of its goals. It really did distribute visitation. It really did uh, reduce the crowding, the congestion and improved visitor experiences. People had a blast while they were there. And um, something that's pretty funny is that there's this, uh, I think, conception about town that the line was way, way too long. But yes, there were days where it was 45 minutes, an hour, even an hour and a half long. But when you consider previous years where that was well over two hours, three hours, or sometimes the park was completely closed, we actually think that we significantly reduced the entrance line wait times. So timed entry really did achieve a, a lot of the goals that it set out to to set. And I think that that's really great, but we want to work with the community. We want to make sure that everybody's voice is heard. And if there's uh, ideas that folks have, ways that they think that they would adapt it in the future, or if they don't like it at all, you know, and don't want us to continue the program, we want to hear that too and come together to make a decision in the next few months. You mentioned that the Park Service has to see if they can make timed entry happen again with staffing levels. So it sounds like the system does require more staff or more funding. Is is that right? Time entry does require additional staff to carry out as it is designed right now because we have additional folks that need to check those reservations. And then there's a ranger that's stationed in the park just verifying that all the vehicles that enter past the booth do in fact have a reservation when they're going into the park. So it does, it does add a, a handful of extra positions. And so we just need to make sure that we are capable of <laughs> continuing that into perpetuity if we do decide to carry forth with timed entry. So as Arch's pilot timed entry system comes to an end on Tuesday, um, what kind of heads up would you like to put out there for locals and visitors? I definitely would give a heads up to folks that especially right after timed entry ends, October is still traditionally a very busy month. And we do expect there to be a lot of crowding and congestion and even those entrance delays where we have to swing the gate closed for a few hours. So definitely pack your patience. And if you can arrive as early, early 
as possible, just so that you can maybe avoid those lines. So either come early or, or go late and just take care to, um, you know, be, be mindful, I guess I should say, be mindful of the fact that you might be there with thousands and thousands of your new best friends. Kate Thomas, the public affairs specialist at the Southeast Utah Group of National Parks and Monuments. She expects Arches staff to make a decision about running another reservation system by December. And it's time for our new segment that will air on weeks that the city council or county commission has been in session because sometimes you just want to know what happened at the what happened at the meeting what happened at the meeting whatever happened at the meeting what uh, exactly happened at the meeting Maggie McGuire editor of the Moab Sun News answers at this week's Moab City Council meeting relatively new staff members the Moab City Police Chief and the Sustainability Director gave updates on their departments Chief Jared Garcia said that staffing at the PD has improved in the four plus months he's been on the job in addition to a host of other upgrades to the department. Brand new sustainability director Alexi Lamb told council members that her first priorities are to fine tune the city's dark skies ordinance, work on renewable energy and water conservation issues, improve the recycling rate, and finalize the long awaited Moab sustainability plan. And that's what happened at the meeting. This exercise in civics is a collaboration between the Moab Sun News and KZMU News. Find recaps of local government meetings at moabsunnews.com. You can watch these meetings on YouTube, too. Find Moab City in Grand County, Utah, there. And now the weekly newsreel, where we speak to reporters about their latest stories of the Moab area. A group of Moab businesses and an off-highway vehicle advocacy group are suing Grand County and Moab City. They claim regulations, including noise ordinances, have cost outfitters $1 million. The Times Independent's Sophia Fisher speaks with Justin Higginbottom about their story. As usual, we have an OHV-related story in the paper. Um, This week, actually on Monday, a dozen local um, off-highway vehicle businesses, as well as one out-of-state recreation advocacy group, um, have filed litigation against Grand County and the city of Moab for various OHV uh, regulations and noise restrictions that they say have cost the businesses over a million dollars in lost revenues. And what sorts of regulations uh, are they claiming cost them this money? Yeah, it's a whole suite. So one of them is the joint moratorium passed by the city and the county in 2020 against new OHV events and new OHV businesses. Then we've got the noise ordinances for both the city and the county. And then finally, we have some now defunct provisions that used to be couched in Grand County's business licensing ordinance that introduced um, specific regulations and restrictions on OHV companies such as caravan caps, fleet caps, mandatory noise testing of vehicles, all that stuff. And and the organization that's bringing forth this lawsuit, it's the Blue Ribbon Coalition, right? And they represent OHV businesses in the area? It seems like it's more of a partnership. They're one of the plaintiffs, Blue Ribbon, and it's Blue Ribbon and then all of the local businesses. And uh, folks may know Blue Ribbon is a uh, motorized recreation advocacy group based out of Idaho, but with a strong presence in Utah as well. So they they are one of the plaintiffs in this litigation. And, And does the city have any response to this lawsuit yet? 
Um, at the moment, um, both the city and the county declined to comment on the specific litigation. Um, Grand County Attorney Christina Sloan did say kind of more broadly that Grand County has, quote, a legal responsibility to protect the health, safety, and welfare of its inhabitants. And she talked a little bit about noise pollution and how regulating noise pollution is a legitimate government interest. Great. So, yeah, it seems like the OHV issue will stay in the news for the foreseeable future. Indeed. And just so folks know, these most of these same businesses in Blue Ribbon filed notices of claim back in March, which was a prelude to this. So if the story seems familiar, you're not mistaken. It's a follow up to that. But it's you know formal litigation now. So it's certainly um, ramping up. And what do you have next on your front page here? Well, White Mesa Mill uh, down in Blanding opened its doors to the media on Tuesday to discuss some new initiatives. Um, so I went down, I spoke with Terry Slade, who's the chief chemist there, and then Mark Chalmers, who's the president and the CEO. Um, and Chalmers specifically talked about the outreach that the mill is now doing with local indigenous tribes, including the Ute Mountain Ute community, because there definitely have been controversies there between um, the mill and, and, and the Ute Mountain Ute. And then additionally, the mill has launched a new foundation. It's called the San Juan County Clean Energy Foundation. It's got a goal to fund a variety of projects benefiting the residents of San Juan County. So definitely some some exciting news there. And what the White Mesa Mill has been controversial, as, as you mentioned. Uh, especially with the the White Mesa uh, community there, the the Ute community. Can, can you talk about why it's been controversial for for some San Juan residents? Absolutely. Um, so there's been you know longstanding accusations against the mill that the um, contaminants that they store in tailings ponds there are seeping into groundwater. Um, I don't know about any formal finding of that, but that's definitely been an accusation levied for a while. And then additionally, last December, the Environmental Protection Agency cited the mill um, for what they said was an egregious violation, and they walked back the egregious part um, for allegedly violating the Clean Air Act by leaving some... uh, radon-emitting solids not covered by water as they're supposed to be. Uh, So I spoke with uh, Mark Chalmers about that a little bit as well, and he said that they're working on filling up that tailings pond. It's called Cell 4B, um, and and working with the EPA on that. And the uranium business has been uh, historically kind of volatile, and so it it looks like this might be an opportunity for them to to stay in business uh, going after these rare earths or processing these rare earth materials. Yeah, exactly. So White Mesa does a few different things. They process uranium and vanadium, and they also process some rare earths right now, which folks may know. They're kind of weirdly named. It's a this weirdly named assortment of like a dozen metals that are really crucial components of a lot of different things, including the batteries for electric vehicles. Uh, and Chalmers said that the mill is really wants to ramp up its processing of these rare earths could be huge for the united states especially for geopolitical interests right now just because um, from what i understand a lot of those rare earths are produced or processed in other countries including countries like china so the less we have to depend on countries like that the the better for us great and what what else do you have this week sophia well, my editor wrote a great story called The the Grateful Eight, which is a pun I cannot take credit for, but that I appreciate, um, about the first homeowners moving into Arroyo Crossing, which happened on Tuesday. So a great feel-good front page story there. Yeah, so Arroyo Crossing, it's been many, year, many years in the works. It was a parcel of land kind of south of Moab City and Spanish Valley and will ultimately bring 300 um, housing units deed-restricted for locals and, and members of the local workforce. And the first eight, quote, guinea pigs um, have c- completed their houses and are moving in. 
Yeah, and, and we went down there as well for the open house. They, I was impressed by by the homes. They're they're beautiful. They're beautiful. And one cool thing is, as folks may know, these were self-help homes as well. So homeowners put in something like 900 or 1,000 hours of work in addition to their jobs helping to build these houses, which, you know, is a great way to produce affordable housing because I think it reduces your down payment, makes it easier to finance. But a huge lift. And what a what a cool thing to have helped build your own home. Yeah. And it's just going to be such a cool neighborhood because the people living there will be locals, will be workers. Um they won't be empty homes there. Exactly. And they really need them. Um, Doug spoke with a woman, Haley Gardner, and I I think he said that she'd reported she lived in like four different places in town while building this home in the last year. So it just shows the, the volatility, too, of the housing market here and how important it is to have these stable units available. Great. And what's this on the city applying for federal funds? Yeah, so it's been just about six weeks since we had that devastating 100-year flood downtown. And the city is just starting to expand their um, follow-up to that outside of just like, you know, immediate relief towards longer-term planning. Um, So I spoke with City Finance Director Ben Billingsley, who's working on an application to get federal FEMA funding for planning assistance for potential upstream infrastructure that could mitigate future floods like this. So that could be anything from detention and retention ponds upstream in Miller Pack Creeks to upstream flood gauges that would, you know, provide a good warning if, if uh, flood level flows are coming down those creeks. And that's very important as as you guys have covered um, just how dangerous it, it can be if there's no warning system for those downstream of these floods. Absolutely. And I also spoke briefly with city engineer Chuck Williams. As folks may know, um, everybody was encouraged to assess and report their damages from the floods. um, Because if you hit a certain threshold, you can qualify for some immediate FEMA assistance. And he said the city... Um, and perhaps the county as well, but definitely the city has submitted its initial damage estimates and they're waiting back from FEMA to see if they're eligible. So just a quick update on that. We're we're waiting to hear back from FEMA about kind of more immediate um, mitigation funds. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Moab City has a new sustainability director. Alexi Lamb will work on things like dark sky compliance and recycling. She's also finalizing the city's sustainability plan. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News speaks with Justin Higginbottom about their story. The city of Moab um, has hired a new sustainability director. Her name is Alexi Lamb, and she started on September 26th. Um, and the prior director, Mila Dunbar-Irwin, left the position in April. Um, the sustainability director role covers a lot, but also the city um, hasn't had a very easy time in defining that role because the prior two sustainability directors um, were only working there for a short time. At the city council meeting on September 27th, Alexi presented her priorities to the council. Um, So first, she wants to finish up the city's dark sky regulations. um, And this is kind of like an ongoing project. So in August 2019, the council unanimously voted to require that all outdoor lighting on residential and commercial properties has to conform to these international dark sky standards within five years. Um, So that deadline is August 2024. So that's coming up pretty quickly. And so Lamb is going to make sure that people are 
you know, getting in line with those regulations. She also wants to prioritize Moab's place in the Utah 100 Communities Project. Um, so this is a project where these communities set a goal to transition to net 100% renewable energy by 2030, which also seems very close. You know, that's only like eight years away. And then she wants to enhance Moab's recycling outreach. So she wants to develop strategies to inc- to increase the city's diversion rate, um, which is currently only at 11%, which is really low. And then her final priority is to complete Moab's sustainability plan. And so this is something that the prior two sustainability directors also worked on, but it really hasn't been able to get off the ground since 2019. Um, So in 2019, the sustainability director at the time named Rosemary Russo, um, she tried to create this plan, which outlined really ambitious goals for Moab. Um, But the plan came before the city council seven times with all these updates to it, and then it was never finalized. Um, And Russo left the sustainability director position before the plan was finalized, and so did Mila Dunbar-Irwin. So right now we don't have a sustainability plan. Exactly. Yeah, we only have this draft plan. Um, But Alexi Lamb said that the draft has strength um, and she wants to update and rework it. And so she said she wants to make sure that goals are aspirational, but also achievable. Great. Well, I hope she sticks around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. And um, she's not the only new hire in town, right? Right. Yeah. So um, our new police chief, Jared Garcia, is about four and a half months into his job with the Moab City Police Department. And so also during the city council meeting, he provided a number of department updates. Um, so staffing at the department has significantly improved. So when Garcia started, the there was only eight people on staff, um, including himself. And now there are 18 officers. And that includes a new assistant chief, an administrative sergeant, two detectives, and five officers. Wow, that's, that's a huge jump. I guess they've had trouble attracting police officers, especially not from this community, but... Right. attracting uh, employees to, to move to Moab, especially with the housing crisis. We right. Have. Yeah. So during the city council meeting, Garcia introduced the new assistant chief and the new administrative surgeon. Um, so Lex Bell is the assistant chief, and he came from the Unified Police Department of Greater Salt Lake, where he worked for 21 years. Um, and he said he's so far super excited about the opportunity to be in Moab. And um, the administrative sergeant is Scott Finlayson, who also worked at the Unified um, Police Department. And he has a master's in public administration and a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Excellent. That's that's good news. Yeah. Uh, and what, what else do you all have this week? There's a pretty big event coming up next weekend. It's the annual Red Rock Arts Festival. Right. I'm excited for it. What, yeah. What's going to be going on for that? This year's festival features a lot more workshops and performances. Um, so I talked to Kelly McInerney, who's the Arts and Special Events Director at The Mark, and she said this year she really wanted the festival to feel new and feel like everyone would have something to go to. Um, and so there are a ton of events this year. There are kind of the classics, like there's the plein air painting competition and the street fest, of course, which is on Saturday. But there's also going to be a poetry workshop and a songwriting workshop. There will also be 
a bunch of pop-up artists. Um, so there's going to be a workshop led by Art Church, which is an organization that leads simple art projects with a focus on mindfulness and creativity. A performance by Sadie Stolle, who's an aerial artist. Um, an interactive art-making booth led by Douglas Tolman, which will ask people the question, where are you? And encourage people to think about place and space. Um, and there will also be an interactive installation by artists Emily Arnson and Sarah Luecki. Um, the two created a wishing well and they invite passersby to leave offerings. Cool. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it's amazing that all of these artists are coming to Moab. Um, you know, there's Street Fest, which has vendors and food, and that'll be all day on Saturday outside of the Mark. Um, there will also be an art walk that night, and on Sunday, the Art Fest will wind down with a poetry reading at Back of Beyond Books. Allison Harford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. And that's it for the weekly newsreel, where we speak to reporters about their latest stories of the Moab area. Find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes of the news on our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you get the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.